Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's my pleasure to have you with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. It's been almost two weeks since the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. There are other smaller bank failures. And today, I want to talk about the questions that keep coming at me about your concerns about the safety of your money in your accounts. And this is true for both uh, wealthier individuals and most business owners have times that you bump up against limits. We're going to talk about that. And later, cost of TV keeps going up and down at the same time. How could both things be true simultaneously? We're going to talk about it because it's key to you stretching every dollar. And we're going to talk about your alternatives. So right now, I want to talk about the banks. A couple of weeks ago, there was there was actual true panic going on. And today, I'd say there's confusion. Where are we headed with this? Truth? Nobody knows. Nobody knows because there are stressors in the system. Plus, there's still real insecurity about the safety of banks from what happened 15 years ago with the banking scandals. So the American banking system is much healthier than it was 15 years ago. No doubt. The issues of extreme criminal activity, not present this time. At least not any we know of. And it's a totally different circumstance this time versus last time. There were specific factors that led to the banks that are having a tough time right now and the failure of one of the nation's largest banks, Silicon Valley Bank. Interest rate movements have had a big impact. This is something none of us ever care to pay attention to, and we shouldn't have to. But we had ultra-low, artificially low interest rates in the economy for a long time to deal with the aftermath of the banking scandals of 15 years ago and the follow-on Great Recession. And then we went through an extended period, just as rates were on their path towards more normal, then we had COVID. And we had the emergency actions by central banks like our Federal Reserve all around the globe to prevent a worldwide depression when COVID hit us three years ago. What it means is that if I'm a bank and I have my reserves and I had done what I thought was good cash management, which is put the money that I have in reserve 
and longer-term financial instruments, suddenly, as the Federal Reserve started the process of fighting inflation and other central banks around the world, same thing, fighting inflation by pushing interest rates up, what happens is when the interest rates are pushed up, the value of any kind of holdings that are longer-term drop in value. So we ended up with this gap in reserves at these financial institutions. And once people got worried, it created a cycle of a run on the bank. And as has been pointed out um, by us and many other people, social media played a role in this as well, which did not exist in any meaningful scope 15 years ago. But within minutes, word spread, hey, I'm worried about our money at Silicon Valley Bank, or I'm worried about our money, I don't even name other banks and be part of that problem. This bank, that bank, the other bank, bank in Switzerland, other banks in the United States. And so it created an accelerated run on certain banks. Now, the banking sector is not unhealthy in the United States. The problem is, as I discussed when we did our special show in the midst of the banking problems emerging two weeks ago, is so many bank deposits are uninsured because the regional banks or the mid-sized banks, nobody seems to be able to settle on, do we say regional, super regional, mid-sized, whatever. Let's just go with mid-sized. They're the banks that are the tier below the four giant monster megabanks. They principally do business with local and regional businesses. And if you're in business and you have really any size at all, it can be a a local service business, you're repeatedly going to have deposits in excess of the quarter million FDIC insurance. So the problem is, If I've worked hard to build up my business and suddenly I freak out and I get worried about the safety of my money in a bank, what am I going to do? I'm going to move money. I'm going to move it somewhere else. And that's what creates the runs on the bank. And that's why a number of these mid-sized banks have seen deposits flee. Then you add on top of it, going back to interest rates, what is a natural thing for a business to do. It depends on the size of the business, if they're big enough that they have somebody managing, you know, an accountant on hand, a bookkeeper, the bigger they have a chief financial officer, whatever. As the interest rates available on idle cash rise, what do they do? They go to where they can get the most money on that. Reducing the amount of money that is just sitting there idle in a particular financial institution that was using that money to operate on, suddenly they have less deposits because the deposits are going to where they can earn more money. And that's not a run on the bank. It's just smart business on the part of those customers. So all these things have been baking in a cake ever since the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates. So that's a long way around of saying, Technically, deposits only insured to a quarter million, but it's pretty clear that deposits are going to be protected 
at any financial institution that runs into cash flow issues for now to prevent a cycle of fear that would feed on itself and lead to one run on a bank after another after another. Now, the long knives have come out since two weeks ago, and there's one story after another after another talking about moral hazard. Okay, so what's the idea of moral hazard? It's that you have these banks that make money and give it to their stockholders, but if they get into trouble, then they know Uncle Sam is there for them. That is true moral hazard because that socializes the risk but privatizes the profit to the stockholders. And it is true that Silicon Valley Bank, the stockholders got wiped out. And that's as it should be. But let's look at the other side of this. For a business to function, it is not reasonable for you and me as business owners to be able to look under the hood of any bank and know whether they are safe and secure or not. And that's why we need to not ignore the problems we're having going on now with banking, but we need to act on it to require new structures that make banks fundamentally more sound. Now, in Washington, with the short attention spans of the politicians and the lack of real deep understanding of how the banking sector works, I don't know that there will be the sense of urgency to eliminate the moral hazard and create more financial security in the banks. I mean, how do you do that? You require more reserves. Reserves are much better than they were 15 years ago, but banks don't have nearly enough reserves to deal with any situation where a meaningful number of depositors would come in and say, hey, I want my money now. And there are various ways you can do it with capital or with borrowed funds that would be deposited with the bank by people who would be uh, essentially their lenders to a bank that if the bank needed the money, they then become stockholders of the bank. And that gets pretty esoteric and complicated. But the point is, we have two different things that are going on simultaneously. One, how do we deal with what's a core unfairness of modern banking. And that is the stockholders in a normal time get the profits, but in an abnormal time, potentially the taxpayers of each country, and our own is what we're talking about right now, end up on the hook like we did 15 years ago to bail out the banks. That fundamental problem needs to be solved and there are several ways to do it we need solid conversations about that second it is not right for a business owner or a wealthy individual to be expected to know the underlying health of a bank impossible even the auditors of the just now failed banks said weeks before that they were fine when they weren't so what does it mean you should do? That's the key. What is it you should do as an individual? I want you to be careful, regardless of when this blows over with the banks and all that, 
having more than a quarter million in a bank. Unless Congress adopts a new totality kind of regime where any money you have deposited in a financial institution automatically covered, you want to think this through. I mean, there's Yanis, the basketball player from Greece, who lived through the Greek bank failures of the financial crisis of 15 years ago, was much in the news several years ago because he has, I think he has uh, 50 or 60 different bank accounts at different financial institutions where he doesn't keep more than a quarter million in any one of them. Plays for, if I remember right, the Milwaukee Bucks. And he does this because he wants to make sure he's got full FDIC insurance. And I'm not telling you to go open 50 or so accounts. That's why recently I talked about CDARS. The CDARS program is a way for you to make sure all your money is, in fact, insured. But I, as a business owner, I want you also to be aware of your ability to take funds and put it into money market funds that are U.S. Treasury or government securities based. I shared that two weeks ago. You may not have heard about that. I want you to be aware of it. Easiest two places to do that are Schwab and Fidelity. And this is a way for you to have your working funds at the bank of your choosing and at the same time any excess capital to be earning market rate interest on it but have it be better than FDIC insurance, a direct obligation of the U.S. Treasury, the U.S. government. And Krista, I could talk about this for like another 45 minutes, but I don't want people to fall asleep. It's just like, you know, if we talk about life insurance, that any time we do life insurance on the podcast, it should be what you do if you're having insomnia, you listen to it, (laughs) and then you fall right to sleep. I hope that banking goes back to being something that instead of costing people sleep, where they worry that it becomes something that is a snoozerama and people just fall straight to sleep. Did you did you nod off and go to sleep when I was talking no, about this? Definitely not. But you know, I may be in a different position since I work on this with you. So um, let's go to a couple of questions that are um, kind of fun. This one's from Payam in New York. My two young kids, eight and 11 years old, got into doing neuropsychological studies online during the pandemic. Each study in turn gives them five to $25 in Amazon gift certificates. Over the year, the money adds up to about $200 per child. My question is, if this money is considered taxable income, and if I can use it to open a custodial Roth IRA for them. Okay, so first of all, what is a neuropsychological study? Well, I don't know specifically, but neuropsychological examinations are done to see like, if a child has any learning differences. It could be about ADD, things like that. See, I never stop learning on the Clark Howard podcast. I'm not an expert. That's just what I, <laughs> from awesome. my knowledge, which is very limited. Okay. So this has come up over the years or, or the surveys that people do. Are, are these things taxable income? And technically, yes. So this is a perfect situation because with two preteen kids, yeah, they they work for this money. They did these surveys and you don't even have to file a tax return because it's a small amount of money. You could just keep documentation of what they earn 
And yes, you can open a custodial Roth IRA for each of them. Make sure it's a custodial Roth and not traditional IRA because you want that money to grow tax-free. For Think about an 8 and 11-year-old, how much money 200 bucks becomes, just that by itself, over the next 55, 60 years. Awesome. Okay, this is from Nancy in Georgia. What do you think of the Apple iPhone upgrade program? Is it a good deal? Well, okay. So it is a convenient thing. And what it means is it's kind of like you're leasing a phone forever. The idea of doing the Apple program for the iPhone is you're always able to get the next year's new phone. And as long as you haven't completely trashed your existing phone, they seem to be pretty generous allowing uh, a decent amount of wear and tear on the phone that you turn in, you then, no harm, no foul, you go into the next year's model, and so you always have the up-to-date iPhone, the most current iPhone. The downside, you're paying forever forever. You're always paying. Why did Apple do this? Apple's a pretty private company, so they publicly traded, but they're pretty private. They hold their cards close. But as an outside observer, people tend to hold their iPhone and use the same one for years and years and years. In fact, there was a woman who stopped wanting a picture with me this morning. And I I said to her, hey, I'm so impressed because her iPhone was not even a double-digit iPhone. It was like an iPhone 8 or 9 or something. It was way back. And she said, well, it's working great. I don't need anything else. That people with iPhones tend to keep them longer and longer and longer. Well, Apple needs people to get the newest stuff. So the upgrade program is all about getting you to cycle through the iPhones. Then they take your old one and they sell it to somebody else here in the United States or overseas. They may refurb and then put it back into the market for someone else. So this is really about you. If you need to have the latest, greatest iPhone, and you always want to have that latest, greatest iPhone, fine, go for it. On the other hand, if you find that your iPhone is is perfectly fine and you're happy with it, don't do the upgrade program. And... I know that Apple says, don't worry, you can just pay it off to us, and then you own it, but I'd rather you keep it simple if your druthers are to keep a phone for any of a number of years. So, I love having the feedback from iPhone customers, so if you have other perspectives on why you feel that the upgrade program from Apple is a much better tool than I just painted please go to clark.com slash clarkstinks. Coming up straight ahead, streaming TV is being pretty stinky right now for people with very aggressive price increases. I'm going to tell you what's behind that and what you can do about it straight ahead. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So a lot of big increases coming with streaming services because of the enormous success of Disney reporting to financial analysts that when they push through the huge increases for Disney Plus pricing, that almost no one switched to a lower priced version or discontinued the Disney Plus that it was such a sticky service that everybody else is like, wow, Disney ran the price way up and they had no market consequences. I guess we're good too. And that's why you've seen one significant and actually much bigger than we'd experienced in the past price increase for streaming services of all different kinds. Those that are the ones that mimic traditional cable have all pushed up their prices a lot. And then for things that are more monoline like Netflix or the Disney Plus or anything like that where you're watching their own programming that's not based on what was known as broadcast bundles, they've all been moving the prices up And YouTube TV, which is, I guess, the biggest player in traditional broadcast kind of fair streaming, pushed through a big increase again. And now we're talking about quite a bit of money, 73 bucks a month. I mean, that's a lot. We're getting up to the kind of price point that the cable monsters used to charge. They Well, not quite, because they were over, I think, $105 a month average. But we're really moving that direction, especially when you think about when YouTube TV launched, it was 35 a month, and now it's more than double that. Hulu Live has gotten in that same territory, and we've got one after another that's up there. Sling is kind of the best compromise If you want a wide variety of broadcast and you want sports, Sling remains potentially the best deal out there, relatively speaking, at $55 a month for the combo of their two colors, orange and blue. And that's if you particularly gravitate towards sports. If sports are not important to you, you need to know about the skinnies that remain really, really great deals where you get the traditional broadcast kind of channels or cable kind of channels without sports at a much lower price. Uh, Philo remains the biggest player with the best deal in that at 25 a month. I mean, think about the difference. If you're not into sports, the 73 a month with YouTube TV, the roughly 70 a month, for Hulu Live, and then you can do Philo, or even, I mean, you think about the sling at 55. 
We're talking about 25 a month. Big, big, big difference. You just got to see, are you comfortable with the channels available? And Friendly, which is spelled F-R-N-D-L-Y, and you can see all this on our streaming guide at Clark.com, starts at $7 a month for an ultra skinny bundle. And so there's these alternatives. Plus, gosh, if you're into sports, an antenna is really great. Because with an antenna, you'll get a better picture of the sports programming that's available on local channels as long as you live within a range that you can pick up the local signals. And as I've shared with you in the past, you'll get all kinds of channels you didn't even know existed, and your monthly bill is zero. And speaking of zero, there's so much ad-supported streaming content that's now available at $0 per month. And you can see our guide to all the streaming services are available for nothing. So it's not like in the era where your only choice was the cable monster. And you went to the cable monster if you wanted programming, and they told you what you were going to pay. And that was it. You paid what they told you. That was all your choice. But now it's not a monopoly. And there's all these different ways to get video content. And if you just let inertia rule your wallet, you'll just pay more money. On the other hand, when the market changes and there are new opportunities, if you are willing to adapt and experiment, you can save so much money. And dare I say, have more content than you could ever watch ever i mean never sleep and you still couldn't watch all the content and have a zero dollar monthly bill and yeah you might miss this or that or the other thing but you're going to have more video than anybody can absorb have you ever had that thing krista where you've looked through and seen how much in total you're paying for various streams I have not. <laughs> I just did it. Oh, boy. I mean, I don't think I'm paying. A, I mean, I have YouTube TV, so this is giving me pause, you know, because I've been with them since the $35 a month cost. But and you so, and your husband love sports programming. Yes, we do. Have you looked at Fubo to see if that would be better for you I with as much it, as you like sports? I tried it temporarily to get some games that I couldn't get on YouTube TV or my ESPN Plus, but... um no, I don't know. I'm going to look at I'm going to look at our list of the alternatives and I'm going to go through it and talk to my husband about it. So, so I've we'll been see. having a discussion we're negotiating right now with all my family members because I'm cutting back on all this cuz I don't like what we're spending right now and they all don't get it because they're not paying the bill. But they're not going to get the programming anymore if we don't reach some kind of accommodation. We do have like free, some of the other services like are discounted through credit cards and through T-Mobile, which we use for our cell phones. So there's some of that we cobble together. So I do have a lot of free other services, but yeah, we'll see what happens with YouTube TV. Let's go to some questions. This one's from Lynn in Georgia. Is it worth it to add early bird check-in when flying Southwest? This is our first time flying them, and I want to make sure my husband and I can sit together. So, Lynn, the way it works is on long-haul Southwest flights, I find that a very high percent of passengers 
pay for early bird check-in. And if you pay for early bird check-in, for people who are not familiar, Southwest boards in the A group, the B group, and the C group. There's no assigned seats. And it's A1 through 60, B1 through 60, and C1 through 60, which the math doesn't really work out because the largest plane Southwest flies has 175 seats. But anyway, on the long hauls, like flying coast to coast or whatever, I find that Huge numbers of people pay for early bird. On flights of, let's say, a length of two hours or less, I find relatively few people pay for early bird. So if you're really worried and you're going on a long-haul flight, then you pay the early bird charge where Southwest automatically checks you in ahead of the uh, normal Earthlings who are allowed to check in 24 hours in advance exactly. I have never paid for early bird for myself or any family member. and I always pay for it. You do? I always do. I have never, ever done it. And because I always set an alarm and check in exactly 24 hours in advance, we've never ended up in a center seat. And as far as being able to sit together, that has not been a problem checking in exactly 24 hours in advance. So the peace of mind gets you, does it get you A group or early B group or Usually what does it tend to get A you? A or early B. But if I'm flying with my husband who does not like the whole boarding system and the whole thing, and I don't want to check bags, even though I know it's free on Southwest, I just want to make sure that it's a calm, peaceful experience with him. So that you're buying marital harmony. I definitely am. Yes. Okay. I don't. I won't right. pay it. <laughs> okay, let's go to Tom in Florida's questions. Another travel one. I fly Frontier Airlines quite a bit because they are one of the few carriers that go where I need to go. They offered a tempting credit card offer with 60,000 miles or three domestic flights cash back to cover the annual cost of the card and other perks that make the card look good. The card is issued through Barclay. We pay off our cards monthly, so with the cash back portion, it looks like we could essentially fly frontier for free what is your take absolutely tom you're a devoted frontier flyer and this is what i always say about these airline cards if you fly them regularly you have significant charge volume not that important with frontier because the way their card is set up you don't have to worry that much about how much charge volume you have on it you'll get the decent benefits in your case this works out ideally for you the math works and you're the first person ever to ask me about getting a Frontier Airlines credit card. Never happened before this moment. Now I'm waiting for somebody to ask me about a Spirit credit card because wow. we haven't had that either. Right. That might take a little longer. <laughs> this is from Frank in Montana. I have a credit card with one of the super regional, almost giant monster mega banks. It was my first card over 10 years ago, and they've always treated me well. But my latest bill shocked me as there was a late fee on it. Despite mailing my payment two weeks before the due date, it was processed one day late and assessed a late fee and interest. The fee is just a slap in the face, but what really worries me is the hit my credit could and will take. I would have happily made an extra payment via electronic means if I'd been given any notice by email or something that my payment was about to be late. Do I have any possible recourse in this situation, or have I just learned a hard lesson that will stick with me and my credit for five to seven years? Frank, don't worry. Be happy. 
This isn't going to show on your credit because it's not a 30-day late. It was one day late, according to this bank. Now, you should call their credit card operation. Tell them you've never had a late pay. You've mailed it two weeks in advance. And it could be their processing problem. I don't know if you know this story, Frank, but years ago, there were problems with banks that were sitting on processing payments. And we did a thing where we were sending payments to credit. There's something I did in TV where we were sending payments by overnight delivery. And we knew when they were received and the average time that a payment was posted was four days after receipt by the bank. And I remember when we caught them red-handed and we talked to media relations at the credit card company and they gave us a bunch of gobbledygook about why they were posting payments days after they were received. The credit card company will blame it on the postal service. Everybody loves to blame everything on the postal service. I would say that in this case, your track record's clear. You call and you ask them to remove the late fee and remove the interest charge. If they don't do it, I would file a complaint with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, consumerfinance.gov, and I can pretty much give you a 100% guarantee that the bank then will do a customer accommodation. If they don't do it in your phone call, they will do it after the complaint at consumerfinance.gov because your track record of payments is so clear and you mailed it by your telling two weeks out. The mailing thing, never again. Do not pay bills by mailing in a payment. Electronic bill pay is free. Set it up with your bank or credit union. The payment will post electronically. There will be no issue of statement of fact or anything like that. This will never happen again. So right now, all you have is you have a late fee and interest. You will, though, in this case, have no mark on your credit. Don't worry about the five to seven year thing. And it was an eye opener when we did that thing with the overnight delivery and the payments were consistently posted late over and over and over again. Tells you everything you need to know. And I don't believe that it's a conspiracy on the part of the banks. I believe that it's a processing problem at the banks, that things are not posted when received. And I want to thank you so much for being with us today. I hope the rest of your day is absolutely fantastic.